We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Just in case there's any confusion, yes, Battle Royal is not only a short story originally published in 1947, but also the first chapter of his seminal work, Invisible Man. You can read either one, and they're close enough. So I gotta ask before we get into this, every time I thought about the title, I don't know why, but probably because I grew up in the 1980s and WWF Battle Royale at WrestleMania or something, I don't know. It just kept, I kept coming back to Battle Royale, even though it's Battle Royal. So if I say it wrong, I'm apologizing from the beginning. Did, did you do that too in your head? <laughs> Every time it was Battle Royale. Maybe for this video, let's just do it Battle Royale style because I know I'm going to slip up and call that anyways. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't want to insult, you know, Mr. Ralph Ellison, but Battle Royale, Battle Royale, I may use interchangeable, but this is what we're speaking about. <laughs> So the story starts out, and the narration's interesting because it kind of is like, hey, 20 years ago, so we're already reminiscing on our younger self, right? So, so we might be wiser, we probably have learned some things, as opposed to when the, the narrator's going through the experience in the story, per se. And this is a narrator that is having a search for himself, kind of like an existential journey, I would say. He has this line, he says, I am not ashamed of my grandparents for having been slaves. I'm only ashamed of myself for having at one time been ashamed. Which tells us a lot, right? Like we learn about what is this main character's ethnicity, right? We learn that he's self-reflective, he's intelligent, he's reminiscing about the way that he perhaps has learned and in become kind of like a dynamic character even and where he's aware of his past even this line was very powerful for me because i obviously can't really relate being a white man in 2023 but the thought of somebody being ashamed of someone else being forced into slavery or servitude is crazy to me but then this gives a perspective of that of okay why do you feel this way and i think that is very important to understand as you start to see the interaction with the narrator and his grandfather. He leaves him that letter that says, Son, after I'm gone, I want you to keep up the good fight. I never told you, but our life is a war, and I have been a traitor all my born days, a spy in the enemy's country, ever since I give up my gun back in the Reconstruction. Live with your head in the lion's mouth. I want you to overcome them with yeses, undermine them with grins, agree them to death and destruction. Let them swallow you up until they vomit or bust wide open. So what do you think the grandfather was like with advice like this? There were probably multiple types, but I put them in kind of two categories. There were ones that were subservient, obviously for certain reasons, and there were ones that fought back. Again, many multitudes more. But if you look at it, uh, those are maybe the two major classes of type of slaves. 
the grandfather would probably be in one group that was more subservient. He wasn't mouthing off. He wasn't fighting back. He wasn't attempting to run away. Uh, he, he did what he was told all the time. And he felt ashamed of that and felt like a traitor to his own people because he probably saw other slaves on the plantations that did mouth off, did fight back, did, you know, raise up problems, uh, you know, and then everybody might be punished as a result. So he's looking for what is the easiest way to survive and how can I get through this without the least amount of pain and suffering inflicted upon myself, my family, and all those around me. And he feels ashamed of that. He feels guilty, even though he's trying to make the best choices possible with the little amount of choice that he has in his life. Yeah. I get the sense that, and it's interesting that you, you, you try to break it down that way because it's going to lead into actually a, a point that I want to bring up. But I get the sense that the narrator is, or was, naive at least, because he didn't really fully understand the grandfather's words. He lived in the shadow of this oppression, this racism, the, the fact that the grandfather was still searching for dignity in, in some levels is the way that I think the, the narrator took it. But at graduation, he gives a speech to your point about the docility. Yeah, I don't think that's a word, but I'm just going to be a word for now. But he gives a speech on the humility of, of him, and he's praised for his actions and is even given an invitation to meet with the town's white leaders, to meet with the power, to meet with the rich, right? And, and you get this sense of privilege from the adult male white leaders, right? And the narrator says to himself that he compares himself to a young Booker T. Washington, which is why I say you kind of lead me into my, my, one of my analysis points here. Because you and I have talked before about Booker T. Washington, specifically with his, um, that really hard word I can never say, accommodization, the idea that, <laughs> that his proposal was to, in, in the face of this segregation, of this, this the, the fact that the blacks are being denied a lot of resources and wealth, uh, they don't have equal opportunity, he's willing to make concessions, right? Booker T. Washington's like, look, let's take this. And that way we can we can take education and we can take it to uh, grow our youth, to grow stronger as a race, and to to improve. Something's better than nothing, sure. But it came with the acceptance of of concession, right? And I guess maybe I should ask the question. We've talked about it before. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember one of the big uh, opponents of this on the other side of the fence of that discussion? Um, uh, you have to refresh my memory. It's on the tip of my tongue. You know, when like <laughs> think of the name and it's right there. Like I can picture his face. I can. When you say it, I'll be like, ah, I knew it. <laughs> let's let's keep going. Let's keep going. We'll, we'll get into this. Okay. So upon arriving at the event, our narrator enters this large ballroom, right? And he learns that there's going to be an opening performance. There's going to be this battle royale. I'm sorry. <laughs> boxing match between a bunch of younger black men. So people that look like him, but they're, they're described as tougher. You know, if, if, if our narrator is the winner of this speech about humility, the, the young Booker T Washington, he's, he's intellectual, he's frail, right? He's not, he's not meant to be a fighter. He's not meant to be doing physical labor the way a lot of these young boxers may be. And he's being put into this ring and they're kind of like, well, you're, you're here. You might as well as enter the boxing ring. And he's already kind of just being thrust into the lot with these these other young boys, I would say. And we get a picture of like this Coliseum-like experience, right? Where you have like the rich and the wealthy kings, white men with the power that are kind of controlling and telling the 
the black men who don't have as many resources or power at this point in time in America what to do. Exactly. I also think it's important to point out that you can look at it of just that way of this is the white men telling the black men what to do. But I also kind of thought about the idea of that this is the black men being lumped together all the same. They're still being treated as if they are the same, that they're not unique, because you do have the intellectual being thrown in with the the, the laborers, and there is no distinction between them. The, the white, rich men are just all seeing them for being the same, and still treating them, you know, quote, as animals like they did before, livestock, that they don't see merit in him. And uh, that that's heartbreaking because here you have a guy that has worked really hard to live up to those, quote, white standards, and it still doesn't matter. He's still just being thrust in like all the others. He hasn't made a difference, really, in their view of him. Right. I wonder, too, at this point, the narrator, does does he, in the same way that his grandfather's, like, never seek compromise, like continue to fight in the lion's mouth, overwhelm him with yeses. Where does humility fit into the picture here? Is, is he compromising his own personality and dignity by becoming something that he's not even, like playing along with this boxing, even though he's not a boxer, he's not a fighter. But what's interesting is the next step is they actually bring out the woman, right? The, the blonde woman who does her seductive dance and the boys, they're attracted, but they're also disgusted. Right. And she's doing this dance and eventually the drunker men who are described as doctors and lawyers and and wealthy individuals who are drinking cigars and whiskey. Like you get this feeling of this this hedonism of the excitement of the raw energy of, of human nature, in a sense. And they come up and they lift this woman up until a couple of the more sober men come and, and, and whisk her away to, to, quote unquote, save her. And, and it's a very complex scene, right, because. You have these discussions of exploitation and spectacle in terms of of women, where were they in society, and the black men, and where were they in society. And there's almost like a ladder with these doctors and lawyers you know, drinking the whiskey and cigars at the top of what they're allowed to do and what they're allowed to command. And at the same time, you know, the black men that are waiting to get up there for the battle royale, not only are they being exploited in the same way that the, the white woman is in my interpretation of the story, is there spectacle in it too the way that everybody's watching them and at what expense of not taking action or doing anything until those sober men come along to save the girl because who knows what would happen if they didn't do it, right? And it, it all speaks to this this carnal feeling that like, you know what like one of our favorite directors, Jordan Peele, if he were to direct this scene, this would just be one of those moments where you're just stuck there with your jaw open where you can't believe the depravity the gruesomeness and the violence that's coming from these men that are what they're supposed to be the cream of the crop. They're supposed to be the ones that are leading society with thought and, and such. And they're almost debasing it. And I like you, you went to, uh, to him for your, your director. I went into Quentin Tarantino on kind of my thoughts of this scene and just the depravity of it. Cause you do have the white men who are supposed to be maybe the moral standards and they're obviously failing miserable, but one thing that is mentioned, I think it's, you know, maybe apparent, um, or if you're reading this for the first time in high school and, you know, your teacher asks you um, about the woman of what she does represent, there is a key clue that you can hone in on 
And that is her tattoo that she has across her stomach is the American flag. And she is probably meant to represent the American dream and everybody's kind of fighting after for her. The The part that is bad is that they'll do anything that is not evil, but you, 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 you will cut each other down in order to achieve that American dream. And if they were all kind and nice to each other, then they would all be able to quote, enjoy the show together, but they can't do that. They can't work together. Uh, and so you see that revulsion and you, they all try to grab her and, you know, she does have to be taken away, you know, by, you know, calmer heads, which uh, a lot of times, you know, calmer heads do prevail in, in real incidences in society. Mm. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right because it kind of fits with the fact that also who is able to chase the American dream, right? These boys, they have to sit on the sideline because they're expected to perform in the same sense of, of a spectacle. They're the next thing that's going to be exploited and put out there because they're all blindfolded. They can't, they can't even see what they're going or what they're going after. And the narrator's like trying to like fall down, like, oh gosh, please just get me out of this. And he's hoisted back up into the fight only to find out he's got to fight Tatlock, the biggest one there. And he's just like, okay, uh, let's, let's split the money. I'll give you five bucks. I'll give you seven. Uh, you have have this exchange like fake like i knocked you out you can have the prize i'll break your behind he whispered hoarsely for them for me swear word (laughs) i don't want to say that word (laughs) but you get the idea tatlock's not there for peace he's not there for compromise he's there for getting the best he can in the moment almost in a sense is the way that i interpret it and it's like if they're fighting each other how are they ever going to get out of this so I guess this is the second big takeaway from the story for me is you have the the rich white men who are forcing the, the young black men to, you know, fight violently. And we, we kind of see that you have the intellectual trying to find a, a more peaceful solution to this and he still can't get it to, to happen uh, because it just it's ingrained in there of I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get what, uh, you know, the American dream my way. Well, if you remember too, he even like has like a, a moment of he's going to lose for humility, right? When we think about the Booker T. Washington compromise or what the grandfather, who was a little bit meek, but ferocious in words too. He, he's kind of hard to figure out, I think, but there's almost like this acceptance, I think is kind of what you're saying too, of, of compromise even perhaps of this is the best that I can get right now. And when we, we look at that next scene with the rug that's pulled out where they're like, okay, here's your prize money, get, get your prize money. And then you find out the rugs electrocuted. Right. And they're still fighting for the money. And, and you have like the narrator that's even trying to like, just hold on to a chair or something like, like one of the, the leaders he was just trying to hold on to. And it's kind of like that Santa scene in a Christmas story where he just kicks him off. Like, Oh, ho, ho, ho. like he won't even let the guy hold on to like escape at no cost to himself. He's still got to push others down. Right. Where where power protects power and you're not allowed to step out of line from being oppressed is kind of how I took that scene. And not only that is when the duty is done of the violence and entertainment, we're still going to manipulate you and there's going to be more violence or there's going to be another uh, gotcha moment in order to even get the 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 niceties that we are giving you with the, the, the payment being, you know, booby trapped. So let's jump back to your original question of, of the eternal debate between Booker to Washington and mystery author. 
the, uh, the, the narrator goes back after being in this physical, like who gives an intellectual speech after a physical carnal battle? Your, your mind is in the reptile mode. There, there's just no way you can do it. Right. And he's stumbling and they're, they're throwing these racial epitaphs like throughout this whole thing that it's just such a hard position for this poor little boy. And, and he's supposed to say uh, social responsibility. Right. Like what what is the most responsible thing to do socially, which for the white men, they think because they look down upon these other men that they're meant to serve. It's their responsibility to do that sort of thing, like a twisted version of it. But he says he doesn't say that. He says social equality. Where did we read a story where a man walks in and says, I would like a hotel room. And they say, we don't want social equality. I want a hamburger. We don't want social equality. And this is all black men asking white men of things. W-E-B Du Bois. Oh, I, ah, man, I love the connection. It's, it's great. Mm-hmm. And I think that it fits perfectly here, but how those different views or th- the different, you know, approaches kind of contradict each other or align in some strange way. <laughs> well, well, and for readers that don't know what Du Bois's points were, he was less, he, he didn't want to, he didn't want to, accommodate sacrifice for his envision, right? Equality is equality. Social equality means we are all equal in the same way that in the beginning, remember when they're talking to the the grandfather or the letter from the grandfather, it says 85 years ago, they were told they were free. He didn't say we are free. He said they were told they were free and they kind of believed it, right? Du Bois would say we must push for social equality, which is what his words are echoing. And that's what he's actually thinking as opposed to what does this humility and this compromise mean? I don't mean to talk down upon Booker T. Washington's voice, but I think that's kind of where the narrative energy went for me in my, in my interpretation of the story, at least. I brought it back to the grandfather and again, his own shortcomings that he had viewed upon himself, his own internal failings, where he thought I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a failure. I didn't do what I was supposed to. And if he had, maybe there would have been more social equality push. And if he had fought back, he would have earned his freedom instead of quote, been given the freedom. And I think that can weigh heavy on a person's soul. If you don't feel that you genuinely got something and it was given, it it still kind of comes back to one of the crux of the whole story is that the unnamed narrator is being given this opportunity. He's being given money. He's been given, given, given. And we kind of get to the end of the story and realize that the grandfather might have been right. Like, in, unless you push uh, kind of how Du Bois is saying and you compromise, it's never going to feel true. Yeah. You bring up a good point about the giving because he was given a scholarship but it was to a, a school for blacks, right? It wasn't meant to be an integrated school. And a lot of the black schools had less resources, had less opportunities even. So he's still, he, he's, he's winning, but since power is not sharing completely, he's still being relegated to less of a reward, right? And that's why you have that dream at the end with, yes. at the, you know, he's with his grandfather in at the circus and grandfather's not laughing, Right. He, he to the earlier point about the spectacle of staring at the exploitation of certain individuals and classes and such. He's not he's not funny. He's not there to take a part of it. 
And that's why he's chasing these letters in this briefcase in this dream, letter after letter after letter, only get to the letter that says, keep this black boy running. Because that's what he's going to have to do if he's keep, to your point, getting given things that are specifically leftovers, things that are mm -hmm. lesser than, because that's the way that power is deciding to not share with those, even intellectually, that may deserve it. And I think for me, that last line really meant the idea of falsely sharing, where it, it's the, the carrot or the stick, and they use the stick for a long time, and now it's the carrot of where we can just lead them along and still get what we want out of these groups of people. And that's heartbreaking, because here's somebody that feels like that he is genuinely going to be in a better position. I'm getting to go to school, I'm going to have an education, and then I think his subconscious is telling him that it, it's it's not it's not genuine, it's not real, and that you are going to have to break past that if you want this to be something that is the American dream. Otherwise, it's just going to be another handout. So dare I say, is this the best Ralph Ellison we've read yet? I don't know if you guys have enjoyed anything more, but if you have, let us know what else to read by him. What did you think about the story? Do you think that these are references to Booker T. Washington and Du Bois? Do you think there's something to be said about the exploitation and the spectacle in the story? Let us know your thoughts in the comments down below. If you enjoyed today's talk and aren't sure what to write, uh, I guess write a man that's not invisible. Let's see the people in the comments down below that deserve it. <laughs> My name has been Una. Thank you for listening today. Ralph Ellison playlist down below. Peace. Peace.